Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Jane Ferguson is the author of No Ordinary Assignment, a memoir. Jane is a Polk, Emmy, Peabody, OPCA, and DuPont award-winning foreign correspondent for PBS NewsHour, contributor to The New Yorker, and McGraw Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. Now based in New York City, she has over 13 years of experience living and reporting in the Middle East and reporting from the Arab world, Africa, and South Asia. Her work focuses on U.S. foreign policy and defense, conflict, diplomacy, and human rights. With an emphasis on in-depth magazine-length broadcasting, Jane's reporting is characterized by exclusive groundbreaking access, thoughtful storytelling, and character-driven reporting. Welcome, Jane. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss No Ordinary Assignment, a memoir. Congratulations. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Jane, can you tell listeners why you decided to write this memoir? 
I write at the very, very start of it, you know, that I'm what I wanted to do was write a memoir that was brutally honest about my industry and about why we do this kind of work. You know, I, I get sometimes uncomfortable with, you know, journalists today were often demonized or totally lionized as these grand heroes. And so, you know, I wanted to to, to answer the question that I get asked all the time. Why would you do this kind of work? Like war reporting, what makes someone do that? And I ended up kind of joining the dots backwards and backwards and backwards, right to, 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 to the earliest days of my life to try to understand and get under the skin of it. I'd read a lot of memoirs by, I mean, I grew up reading them. They inspired me to become a journalist, these memoirs. But but very often they, A, had a flawless upward trajectory in everyone's career. (laughs) And B, was, you know, we lean into sometimes a lot of the sort of noble reasoning behind what we do, which is absolutely real and true. But there's a there's a duality. There's also a sort of a second storyline that's usually very personal that causes people to run towards chaos and somehow seem to be able to perfectly function in it. Amazing. You start out by telling us a lot about your upbringing during the Troubles. And I mean, you write about it rather swiftly, but it sounds deeply traumatic, the relationship with your parents. And, you know, you, you tell a story of when you were dressed up for confirmation, I think it was, or some holiday, and and your mom was just, you know, sort of kind of ripping you to shreds. I feel ter- I felt so bad for the little you in that situation. And I'm like, this is not a small thing, The in, having parents who are unpredictable, particularly, you know, when you can't count on the person who's supposed to love you the most. What does that do to you as a person? So I don't know. Speak to that a little bit. No, I mean, two things you say there really strike me. This is not a small thing. And and it's not, you know, I mean, it is, it's everything at that age, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, our entire self-image, our entire sense of ourselves in the world is shaped by how we feel as little children. And for me, It was an extremely turbulent environment, really unpredictable, and certainly not a loving one. Mm -hmm. One where I was encouraged to be brilliant, to be the best. So, you know, and, 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 but, but at the same time, often motivated by a sense of sort of inner shame and a a kind of deep inadequacy in me as as a little girl. But also I would argue that, you know, it, it, it seems over the years, it really did inspire a a stronger sense of empathy and compassion. Mm It made me softer as well as harder. And that was something that that I put to good use. I mean, it actually made me this extraordinarily anxious kid. I had extreme anxiety and I write in the book about how feel the physical sensations of anxiety. It's essentially walking around in the world in, in fear. And I thought that was totally normal. It's sort of like the fish doesn't see the water. And then and then I find myself having to have a relationship with fear when I'm in extremely dangerous places and having a much more familiar sense of it. And so strangely, that became a strength. I think it also increased my sense of of not quite belonging. And throughout throughout the book, there is a theme of of sort of searching for a sense of belonging and that and that being something that leaves me emotionally totally open to the places that I'm in, you know, and in, in a weird way, being un, unmoored geographically in your life and sometimes, you know, emotionally not really feeling like you have a home to go to makes me commit more to the places that I'm in. 
You know, sometimes to a fault, I'll look around and think Afghanistan is my home or think Yemen is my home. But it it opened me up completely when I'm in those places. And, you know, I I, I do write that many of us in the industry are wandering souls. And And I would argue there's probably a fair few unhappy childhoods in there, too. But people who have found their purpose and turned these things into sort of alchemy on the road. Well, it's like if your own home isn't your home, then any potential other place could be it. Right. So you have to try them out. It's like, you know, Goldilocks essentially. Like, is this it? Is this where I'm going to really find my place? Because it should have been there, but it's not. So it must be here. Right. Exactly. And conversely, you are totally used to feeling out of place. You know, Mm -hmm. people ask me all the time, what must it be like someone who looks like you showing up in the street in Kabul or Sana'a or any, or, you know, anywhere. And I, and I'm always like, well, I've, I've just become completely used to being the outsider who is actually treated with great hospitality. And, you know, uh, it, you know, alongside, partnered alongside that personal story in the book is the story of these places that I do make home. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, their their tragic decline over, over the years that I was in the Middle East. You know, I mean, many of the places that I came to know and love have had the most devastating 15 years since I first uh, started traveling there. So, you know, that that is there's a sense of of, of loss mm-hmm. in each nation that that struggled uh, post-revolution or civil war. And so so that's sort of happening at the same time. Wow. Well, yes, you've you've come a long way from sort of feeling out of place at your boarding school to, <laughs> you know, like world wanderer, right? That's a huge, huge shift. You know, I was reading really carefully about how, because what you said is so true. Why do people take these jobs? Why does someone like you end up there? So I was like, what, where is the answer in her childhood? Where is it in growing up? And when you take these assignments, you see, of course, all of it is a combination of timing and luck and opportunity and direction. And you see that here so much when you are covering like Victoria's Secret fashion shows and, you know, <laughs> dressed for an Usher concert or whatever you said and feeling like, well, this isn't it. You know, this is not quite where I want to be. Like, I must have to, where, how do I get to the next step? And then the fact that you were just like, you know what, all of this is wrong. I'm just going to like buy a plane ticket and go check out these remote, faraway worlds and see what happens. I was like, she did what? (laughs) (laughs) So tell me more about, about, a little bit about that period of time. Sure. I mean, I, I often tell people, the story of of getting out of college, what, what it was like. A lot of people forget what it was like to graduate in the financial crisis. I mean, this was, you, you know, for every single industry, no matter what, it was it was catastrophic. And so for my generation, you know, we get out of college. I'd known I wanted to be a journalist my whole life. And that was a, that was a real blessing. You know, I didn't sort of I, I, I didn't I wasn't unsure about my future, about what I wanted to do and just desperately struggled to find work. And I certainly wasn't someone who could afford to sort of wait around. I didn't have an income. And so I I was lucky enough to get a job in Dubai working at a newspaper, and I didn't care what I would be covering at that stage. This was a paying job in a newsroom where I could actually eventually, after you know uh, being a, a very, very, very lowly sub-editor correcting spelling mistakes, I could be a writer. And, you know, this is great. And again, like you say, I would try to fit into everywhere every role that I, I had. And, and I didn't want to be ungrateful. Like it was, a, it was a great opportunity. I was a business reporter, had a nice life in Dubai, but it was absolutely nothing like what I had dreamed of when I was a little kid watching the BBC. And every day in the newsroom uh, at this newspaper, 
we'd have the TV screens all up and it would be like CNN International, BBC. And it would just, I would just see all these reporters doing exactly what I'd wanted to be doing. But here I was, you know, reporting on, you know, car prices and, and, and banking credit card offers and like, you know, and, and that was great, but it wasn't what I wanted. And I didn't really care that it paid well for a 24 year old. So I don't know. I just, I had this one moment in a Mazda car dealership where I was just totally exhausted. You know, there's nothing more exhausting than being someone you're not. Oh, here, wait. I I have that section right here. Here, let me read it to you (laughs) because I love that. Two weeks later. Oh, here, I'll start here. Let's see. I looked around at the faces in the room and wondered what it would be like to go on embed in Afghanistan with American forces. Maybe I can just go there for a couple weeks and see about finding a freelance post, I thought, pushing chunks of blackened cod around on the plate in front of me with my chopsticks. Two weeks later, I had a moment. I was sitting on a folding chair inside a Mazda showroom among a group of about a dozen reporters and Japanese car executives watching a promotional video for their latest car release. I had been tasked with grabbing one of their executives, blah, 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 blah. And then you say, I was utterly miserable and late, but stopped out for a cigarette nonetheless. I don't want to be here, I thought. Part of me felt deeply uncomfortable and uneasy that day, and I just couldn't put my finger on why. And then you say, the sooner I got it over with, the sooner I could go home. And then you said, the feeling of wasting time crept through me. The spot is close to the airport, I thought. Terminal 2, that's where all the flights go to Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan. (laughs) I mean, I I think that what really permeates the story of my, my young career is this idea that I had no, there was no roadmap, you know, like, and so whenever you sort, it's sort of like you get out of college and you're not hired by a graduate program. And therefore, you're kind of off-piste your whole career. And you're trying to figure that out. And so the only thing I knew was that if I at least just acted, I had to do something to move forward. I couldn't wait around. My whole life I've known I couldn't wait around for someone to give me a job. And so I I decided that I would you know, throughout my my whole life, I found that the one thing that has worked has been to like take some sort of action and then see what happens and take the next step and the next step and the next step. And I thought if I could just go there, then I would somehow figure it out, <laughs> which sounds, you know, people are like, wow, that that's absolutely insane. But the reality is that if you are very young and you don't have any dependence or relationship, and you just have this one massive dream, then you're not really risking anything. You know, the only risk is to sit around and let it die. Mm. Wow. That's powerful. Um, But meanwhile, then you do go and, you know, you're in the most horrific situations. And next thing you know, you're, you know, PTSD and well, maybe not diagnosed, but let me read your first really emotional reaction where you're talking about this is in Syria. You said, the moment was what I always wanted, but I felt like a fraud. Staring at my reflection in the mirror as a staffer blew out my hair, I was haunted by questions. If I had stayed longer, perhaps done more stories would have made a difference to the UN vote. Did I take this assignment for my career or a way to tell the story? Maybe it was just vanity and foolhardiness that sent me into Syria. What if I was not the right person? What if a better, braver reporter had gone in and stayed longer? All the while, I continued to feel fear physically. In the frantic swirl of edits, hair and makeup, on-set appearances, and meetings with management, I vibrated with fear. I had yet to come down from the adrenaline, and I knew that after several days, this was not normal. PTSD is flashbacks. Psychosis, I thought. This is not that. I perched on Emma was done. I perched on a desk in an unused meeting room and easing my sore feet out of high heels, I dialed the number for Al Jazeera's teletherapist service. 
Do you feel suicidal at all? Chirped a female voice on the other end. No, I don't, I answered. I am not really getting much sleep. She told me to rest up and call back if it didn't go away. Even in 2012, the thin line between fine and suicidal and frontline journalists was not something news organizations were ready to contend with. So tell me about that, how your own emotions and how to manage them and those services received and how to cope and all of that. Sure. You know, Syria is such a big pivotal moment for me. I was I was 27 and I'd thought it's a moment where I changed. I grew up and I understood more about fear and that it wasn't always just some sort of thing that I could overcome. And that my only value in this work was the fact that I was brave. You know, that was the only thing I had to offer, I thought. And so I had had a moment, I suppose psychiatrists call this existential dread in Syria where I wasn't just afraid, but I was quite certain I was going to die. And it was really, really a feeling I would not wish on my worst enemy. And so I had had sort of run in trying to get out of the country. And my whole time there, there's just an alarm had gone off in my body that was just like, you need to leave. Mm-hmm. And I know that people would say, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I had gone through, you know, the Battle of Mogadishu. I'd been reporting in many, many dangerous places, but this was different. And the interesting thing was I got back to the headquarters. I'd done this re- this reporting, which was pretty groundbreaking because not a lot of people had been able to do this. And I brought the footage back and we and we put together these stories. And it was very, very timely and important as the Assad government was, was increasingly a cracking down on his own people. But I um I was so ashamed because I'd left early. I had meant to spend up to a week in, in Syria and I had left early and I felt like a failure. I thought that, you know, I should have just toughed it out and stayed longer. I get back to, to Doha. I'm in my hotel room and I just can't sleep. And the feeling is not it's not flashbacks. Mm-hmm. It is a, 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 an extraordinary level of physical fear at all times. But I'm still able to talk like I'm speaking to you. I'm still, I look fine, but I'm also utterly paranoid. And I think that there are Assad, like Syrian regime agents out there to get me, bearing in mind I'm in a totally different country by this stage. So I can't sleep. At one stage, I get up in the middle of the night and check my wardrobe for agents. Like, and that's when I'm like, okay, I am not okay. And and I think that speaking to a sort of teletherapist at the time, the, the issue was that I think, you know, I don't think we had, and I still think we have a lot of work to do, an idea in the industry of how people need to come down from these experiences, you know, to decompress. I mean, I had I had a terrible, like really, really horrible fright, and I needed support. I needed to talk about it. I didn't need to be like, so, you know, so I didn't need a clipboard person, like, you know, saying, what are your symptoms? Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? If not, you're probably okay. Mm -hmm. No, No problem. You know, it wasn't a rash. And so I really needed to come down and uh, as soon as everybody had said, okay, well, it's not PTSD. So, you know, you probably just need to rest up. And, 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 you know, and I think that, I think that I was lucky enough. I was able to fly to Istanbul and spend some time with my partner at the time. And that's when we really, really, really decompressed. Just sitting in a cafe on a, on a chilly, you know, winter's afternoon talking about what had happened to someone who has, you know, done similar work, who understood was like, I could literally feel the adrenaline start to drain out of my body. And I was still pretty jumpy for months afterwards, but I was okay. And I knew I'd be okay. And just to end what actually ended up happening in, in, 
Turkey and Istanbul was that I, I found out that the next journalists who had gone in, I knew who it was. It was Marie Colvin. I'd actually read her final dispatch in a, in a, in a newspaper. I was able to pick up a newspaper at a newsstand in, in the airport and that she had been killed. And I learned this in the news. And then very quickly, the activists called me on Skype crying and saying, you know, how do we get her body out? And it was it was just a, such a dreadful way to learn this, awful. But I learned in that moment to trust my gut, that my body had known somehow inside of me, I knew this was a, a too dangerous and it was, I had to leave early. And I guess, you know, the foolhardy, you know, young female who wanted to prove herself to all the guys had, you know, almost learned the hard way, you know, that sometimes things really are too dangerous and sometimes you do have to get out. Oh my gosh. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. So fast forward to now, <laughs> even even post book, how did you get from there to here? And what is your daily life like now? Oof. Well, right now, my daily life is a little bit different. You know, there's no sort of set routine because I feel like I'm taking life in chunks since the book came out this summer and the whirlwind around book promotion. I've actually started teaching at Princeton. I'm there as a professor for the fall semester in the journalism department. So I 
am lucky enough to teach these pretty amazing undergrad uh, students. I need to stop calling them kids. They're not kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I teach them on, I actually teach a course on conflict reporting. So obviously I can't, you know, take them to to to, to conflict zones, but but we look at the old greats. I bore them to death about, you know, Edward R. Murrow and Martha Gellhorn. And 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 then and then we you know we looked at like all through like Vietnam and and the 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 war in Iraq and and, and Afghanistan. And so, and then also reporting today. And so I, so I, I bounce between my home in New York City, where uh, I'm married to a, a very, very nice New Yorker, which is probably going to be a little bit of a spoiler in the book, and and Princeton. So that's that's going to be my life until Christmas. I do a lot of of public speaking as much as I can. And right now, that that's kind of that that's where I am. I still write uh, as much as I can. This all ends come Christmas, and I need to figure out either heading out on the road again or or probably probably trying to build the next chapter of my career which i hope remains in media but might be off camera hmm. interesting do you feel like especially when things that are going on in the news like now do you feel that itch to be out there and to talk to people and report and all that or do you look at all of the reporting in a much more critical way and think, well, this isn't, this is skewed or this or that, or like, what, how do you intake media at this point? Both of those things are true. It, it, it has been very hard to be here and not there. I am trying to, you know, I was messaging with another much, much more famous uh, war reporter than me who, who retired from that work yesterday. And he was sort of like reassuring me, you know, it's okay. The sense that you're kind of breaking free from that life because there's always one more war. There's always one more big story that needs me to be there. And it's very hard to break away from that muscle memory of, mm -hmm. well, if I was there, here's what I would do, right? We need to call this person and this person. We need to get access through there. And these people are not being interviewed. And yes, you know, it's hard. It's hard not to view the media, I guess I should, I want to be careful because I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm sort of judging from a distance, but the early days of conflict and war are always some of the worst reporting. Mm. It's always where misinformation gets picked up. It's always where journalists are under pressure. They're live. There's, there's a real uh, scramble to be the first to break this story. And so I feel like that has been very much so magnified by social media. Mm -hmm. And this current situation, just tragedy, is happening at a time when, you know, social media is actually at its worst, you know, in terms of in terms of fact checking, in terms of of um trying to 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 mitigate uh, hate. And so I I worry about that a bit. I also think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the industry, certainly the TV industry, is has been for quite some time, and now it's really, really ramping up in pace. is is a is an existential crisis. You know, I mean, the business model does not work, hasn't worked for quite some time, and we've seen the coming collapse starting effectively this summer. So, I think that this is all that's all happening in the background of a lot of the coverage. And so, yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. I do have this weird, through pure luck, have this sort of sort of new role where I'm actually teaching young people and I'm like, okay, here's what we've seen. What mm -hmm. do we know is confirmed? You know, is this additive? Is this good quality reporting? Is this balanced? Is this, you know, how are they sourced? Why would those sources have told them that? And so I think that that 
goes some way to making me feel like I can be additive to the situation. I mean, that's 100% additive. I mean, it's all additive. Otherwise, no one has that perspective. Like, someone like you has to teach everybody else. I feel like you should teach more people. I feel like you should do, like, a master class and an analysis and take us through what's going on and point out things that you would notice that we as, like, lay consumers of of media might not notice. Like, so to help us become critical, more critical thinkers of what is being fed to us. That's a good idea because people ask me all the time. They're uncertain. They're like, I don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, you know, what's true or what's at least exaggerated. Like, who should I be hearing from? Who can I trust? They mm-hmm. come to me. And it is kind of great to be able to say to students, okay, well, you know, what, what you want to look at is sourcing. Do they have name sources? Do the sources they have have ulterior motive? Like, do they mm-hmm. think, do we think they vetted those sources? You know, have they been there themselves? Did they see it themselves or are they quoting someone else? And mm-hmm. so, but, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, like I, I empathize with the public, like they shouldn't have to do our jobs for us. You know, that's where the trust that was built up over decades and decades is supposed to be, you know, mm-hmm. you're supposed to trust that the journalist checked. You're supposed to, you know, also, I think there's a huge amount of emotion in reporting at the minute. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, 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 we're living through an era where, you know, understandably, people want to feel more connected. They want to feel like there's more of an authentic emotional connection. And, we, you know, people share more. But there's there used to be, when social media started, a bit more of a line in the sand between what, you know, you might put on social media and what would be the report. Mm-hmm. Like So you might do like some reflections on your phone. You might talk about, well, this is how it felt, or here's a person that I met, and here's some more backstory to them, or here's the team, here's how what we're going through and what it's like to report this. But the actual report that you would present to the public, your additive work would be quite different. It would be a factual, uh, you know, up-to-date story. And so I think that those lines have become quite blurred, where it's sort of like an experiential, an experiential type of reporting, which can actually be very, very effective when you're doing certain stories. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing highly emotional, divisive, you know, a terror attack, it's it, I, I don't think that's always quite as additive. And I think that we're sort of learning as we go along as an industry. No, you're absolutely right. I know this is the first. Is it the first time? I feel like I'm getting most of my news from social media, for sure. Like, And my husband will tell me what he saw on social media because everybody's feeds are different, right? I'm like, I didn't get that. You got that. And even watching people like Matt Gutman, who's over there now, he was on my podcast recently, and Uh seeing him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is he doing? Like, careful. You know, you just want to be like, but, you know, I know you know that feeling, but (laughs) on the other side. The process of writing this memoir for you, by the time you got to the end, how were you feeling about the whole thing? And did you feel like you left the process with a newfound understanding of of your own motivations? Absolutely beyond description. You know, I mean, I, I found it unbelievably cathartic and kind of beautiful. You know, it, what, what I loved about the experience and my writing experience is very intense. You know, I would, I would go to a library and that was sort of like dark and wood paneled and had very strict rules against, you know, phones and stuff. And so I would really, really get immersed in the writing every day last summer. And what I loved, what was kind of beautiful and very emotional for me was that I would look at this young girl and over the months of writing, she would sort of become you know, at like, you know, there, there would be separation between me and her. It doesn't, doesn't feel like you're writing about yourself anymore. 
And you can, you know, have an incredible amount of tenderness. You look at this young person, and you're like, my God, she was just trying her best. And she was so hard on herself. And so I did enjoy being able to make peace with things that I think for years I've maybe felt insecure about, you know, like, well, you know, you grow up sort of uncertain of yourself and trying your best and, you know, trying and falling down and getting back up again. And it was lovely to look back and celebrate that as opposed to feel like, well, that was scrappy. I suppose you did okay, you know, and I really loved that. So by the time I got to the end, I was so exhausted. Like it's amazing how physically exhausting it is to to uh, to to walk through the corridors of your of your mind and your memory and to figure out how best to communicate those experiences. But it felt incredibly cathartic. And I handed it in to HarperCollins and we did our edits over a period of a couple of months. And then it goes away for six months. And in those six months, you know, panic grows. And I was like, <laughs> oh, God, because I was so open about everything. And and so, yes. So so from like basically January to July was just a, just a, a growing code red of utter panic <laughs> about how this book would be received. And I was absolutely petrified. And I've, and I've said to quite a few people in the last like few months that publishing this, writing the book was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Publishing it was by far the most frightening thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done some stuff. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I've read some of those frightening situations you were in, but wow, that's saying a lot. <laughs> well, Jane, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing and being so open because of course that's how we're able to connect with you so much and root for you. And that's why I'm like, what now? You know, I just want to keep this story going. So yeah, congratulations. Well, thank you. Great job. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.